Well, let me just echo uh, Alex's introduction. Uh, welcome, everyone, to Crescent Church this evening, particularly, particularly if you're visiting with us. Uh, we really hope as a church that you will be blessed by your time here tonight. As Alex said, we're continuing our series in Matthew's Gospel this evening, uh, looking at chapter 7. So if you want to turn to that and have it ready in front of you, we'll read it in just a moment. Tonight's passage is all about discernment which can be a bit of a tricky concept for some of us to wrap our heads around. So before we get into it, I want to show you a short video which will hopefully illustrate what we mean by discernment. Wangi. Das Gerät des Küstenwächter. Das Gerät, das Gerät. Überlebensradar. Hello? This is the German Coast Guard. We are thinking, we're thinking. What are you thinking about? So, as we saw, that commercial was promoting lessons to improve your English. The German Coast Guard that we saw knew a little bit of the language, enough to reply to the English captain that was crying out for help, but he didn't understand exactly what the captain was saying, and therefore he couldn't act accordingly. He didn't have the right knowledge, so he couldn't produce the right action. And that's what we want to think about tonight. Put plainly, discernment is understanding God's will and then putting it into practice. The marriage of knowledge and action. As we'll see from this passage, Jesus makes it clear that this is the mark of a mature believer. Being able to make the correct God-honoring decision in any given circumstance. And he doesn't allow us to believe that it's an optional extra either. Something we can tack on to our Christian lives if we want a few extra brownie points in heaven. This is something that all believers should be striving for in order to progress spiritually. So, firstly, Jesus is going to lay out some ground rules that need to be in place before we can discern in the right way. And then he'll offer <clears throat> some examples of discernment that the believer may need to make. <clears throat> Let's read our passage. Matthew 7, starting from verse 1. <clears throat> This is Jesus speaking. Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give to dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? 
If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast demons out in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Amen. This is the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount and of Jesus' first block of teaching in Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew is focused on Christ's kingship, And in this first public sermon, Christ is showcasing what it looks like to be a citizen of his kingdom, the radical changes that must take place in the life of a disciple. He wants to show that there is a clear distinction between living for him and living against him, and that the believer must be able to discern the difference in various areas of their life. And he wants to show us not only how to discern, but how to discern well how to do it lovingly and humbly. Only once we grasp how to approach personal and interpersonal discernment with compassion and humility can we discern correctly and precisely the points in our own and others' lives where Christ is not the priority. But we're going to park the idea of discernment for now and come back to it because Jesus wants to set some ground rules first. We're looking at verses 1 to 12 here. Before he gets into the meat of how we go about practicing discernment, he wants to make it very clear that everything that follows must come from a place of love. If we don't first love those around us, then we will not be able to discern correctly. 
before we start throwing around accusations and pointing fingers and adopting a holier-than-thou attitude, we're to firstly look inwards and examine ourselves. That's the first thing that Christ tells us to do. Point the finger at yourself before pointing it at others. Verse 1 says, judge not that you not be judged. Now, this verse is often taken out of context by people who have no regard for the gospel at all, but they want an excuse to live their lives the way they want without having to answer to anyone because no one else is allowed to judge them. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. He makes it clear that there is an order of operations to be followed. The first thing we must do is look inward, ruthlessly acknowledge and deal with our own sin first. He leaves no room for hypocrisy or navel-gazing. He outrightly commands us to remove the log from our own eye before flippantly commenting on the speck in someone else's. But notice he doesn't condemn taking the speck out of our brother's eye altogether. He, his command to remove the log from our own eye has a twofold purpose. It removes the sin from our own lives, but it also allows us to see clearly to help our brother or sister remove the sin from their life. So imagine I wake up one morning and I'm wearing the eye mask that I wear to bed every night. And I decide that I'm just going to keep wearing this for the rest of the day. So I go for a walk down the street wearing the eye mask, but I'm bumping into lampposts. I'm tripping over dogs. At one point, I wander out in front of a lorry that narrowly misses me. It's a pretty dangerous way to go about my day, but perhaps I do this pretty regularly and I'm kind of used to it by now. I started to get a feel for it, and sometimes I even make it through the day without acquiring any new bruises. Now, imagine you are walking up the street towards me, and you get a text, so you look down at your phone momentarily as we approach each other, and you bump into me. Now, it would be ridiculous for me, wearing the eye mask in that moment, to say, look where you're going. You really need to pay more attention to your surroundings. Stop looking down at your phone when you're walking up the street, or someone's going to get hurt. But isn't that what we do when we point out someone else's sin without first examining our own lives? Jesus asks the people here why we are so good at noticing other people's failures, but not our own. And not only noticing them, but pointing them out and trying to fix them without dealing with our own issues first. Yes, it may be good advice to tell you not to be so engrossed in your phone when you're walking up the street, but it doesn't carry much weight when it's coming from someone who spends their whole day walking around with an eye mask on. We must first remove anything from our eyes that stops us seeing properly. Take a step back, identify the log in your eye, and be ruthless about removing it. Yes, it will hurt. Yes, it will require sacrifice, but it will also draw us closer to our Father. It's easy to fall into an apathetic mindset and assume that conviction of sin will just happen of its own accord, ideally right before we cross the line into where our actions really have consequences. But that isn't what Jesus advocates here. Instead, we should actively seek out our sin in order to pinpoint those things in our lives that have gone unnoticed for too long, the evil that has started to take root. Only once we have been rightly convicted of these sins can we take the necessary steps to cut them out. Ollie mentioned last week that we are to check our eyesight. If our eyes are healthy, then our whole body will be full of light. 
So we must remove anything that stops us from seeing properly. And only once we have enabled ourselves to see clearly can we then help someone else to do the same by lovingly drawing their attention to the ways in which they aren't living for Christ. We approach the situation with humility, acknowledging where we personally struggle and promising to help them as best we can with the Spirit's help. This is how to discern lovingly. The next thing Jesus tells us to do is prayerfully request good gifts from our Father. We see this in verses 7 to 11. He says, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? But what are these good gifts? What is Jesus referring to there? Well, he's talking about the gifts that he's already mentioned in this Sermon on the Mount, the attributes that citizens of his kingdom should exhibit. Righteousness, goodness, humility, purity, and above all, love. If we are to discern, we are to love. And if we are to love, we are to pray for the ability to love. Love can be hard. It's easy to love people who are easily lovable, but it's hard to love those who hate us, those who put us down, those who spit in our face, those who undermine us, those who spread rumors behind our back, those who give us a hard time for seemingly no reason, those who we just don't click with. We can't do it by ourselves. So Jesus tells us to pray. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Jesus encourages constant, persistent prayer for the good gifts of our Father. He pushes us to ask for his help, seek his guidance, knock on his door to request his assistance. And notice that Jesus gently reminds us who it is that we pray to. We pray to our Father. We're not consulting an encyclopedia or watching a YouTube tutorial or reading a WikiHow article on how to get good gifts we are coming to our Father in heaven, who Jesus taught us to pray to in just the previous chapter of Matthew. And when we pray to him, he answers us in love, the same love that we are to take and to pass on to others. Our Father loves us so that we can love everyone else. First John chapter 4, verse 19 says, we love because he first loved us. God wants us to love properly, so he shows us how to do it by his perfect example. Jesus makes the point that even evil people love their children well enough to give them good gifts. So how much more will our completely and perfectly good father give us? He won't give us useless gifts like rocks or harmful gifts like snakes, but he'll give us the spiritual nourishment and guidance that we need if only we ask for it. As we saw last week in chapter six, he loves and provides for the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. So of course he's going to love and provide for his children, those who he made in his own image. Verse 12 brings us back to Jesus's main point. When we approach the idea of discernment, we must learn to treat others with love. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Consider how you would want someone to point out your sin and act accordingly. 
Would you want them to come out guns blazing with a laundry list of every single thing you've done wrong in the last month, demanding that you repent there and then? Or would you want them to lovingly take you aside, gently explain the behavior that they've noticed, humbly empathize with your struggle, and offer sound advice and prayer for your situation? Imagine a church where everyone acted this way. No sideways glances across the room, no whispering behind backs, no snide comments to someone's face, no silent judgment every time you speak, but instead a culture of love, humility, and kindness, where pride and self-righteousness is stripped away to allow open and honest examination of our lives, which in turn allows the transformative power of the Spirit to take hold and turn us into disciple-making disciples. So these are the rules that Christ lays out for approaching this idea of discernment. Point the finger at yourself first, prayerfully request good gifts, and treat others with love throughout it all. So now that he's set the groundwork, Jesus moves on to some of the decisions that we must make as part of accurately discerning God's will. In verses 13 13 to 29, Jesus presents four pairs, each representing the decision that a person makes in various areas of life. And the decision is always the same. Live for Christ or live against Christ. One is the correct choice, one is incorrect. And even a mature Christian requires discernment and wisdom in order to choose wisely. Firstly, we have two gates. One is easy and leads onto an, uh, one is wide and leads onto an easy, comfortable path, the kind of path that you could walk on for hours and hours without having to break out the blister plasters. The other gate is narrow and leads onto a difficult, unforgiving path covered in potholes and broken glass. Obviously, given the choice, a traveler would take the easy route, the one that will be more pleasant but Jesus tells us that that path leads to destruction, whereas the difficult, outwardly unappealing path leads to life. This decision is about our personal living, whether we daily choose to enter the narrow gate and walk on the harsh, rough path of the Christian life. Jesus reminds us elsewhere that the world will hate us for our faith, just as it hated him. That's a difficult truth to choose to live by every day. But Jesus reminds us what that path leads to. It leads to life. Alistair Begg says, the man or woman who lives a holy life, who refuses to seek the non-existent middle way between an obedient life and a popular one, will eventually collide with the ungodly and incur the enmity of the world. But what does it look like to incur the enmity of the world in the day-to-day? Well, perhaps when the opportunity arises, we choose to engage a friend in a conversation about a difficult topic that you'd really rather not. But you, you engage with them rather than just letting it slip by and take the abuse and the harsh comments they might hurl. It might be, might be inviting a family member to a church service even though they've been pretty hostile anytime you've suggested it before. It might even be ministering in a country that is historically aggressive towards Christians 
and facing real physical violence because of your faith. The way is hard, but it leads to life. Take heart when you're persecuted for your faith because it means that you're on the path that Christ has called us to, the path that he himself has already walked ahead of us. If you aren't a Christian here tonight, the narrow gate and the difficult path may not sound very appealing to you. Why would anyone willingly choose to put themselves through that? Why not just stick with the easy path, the easy life? Well, Jesus tells us very plainly that that way leads to destruction. So maybe a better question would be, why would we choose to take a path that leads to a destination of death? No matter how easy it is, the end point will kill us. But Jesus offers life. At the end of the difficult path, he stands waiting, beckoning us to join him in his kingdom. So take stock of what path you're on and where you're headed. Secondly, we have two trees. One is healthy and lush and green. It produces juicy, delicious fruit. The other is diseased and decaying. So everything it produces is rotten and sour. And it's obvious by looking at the fruits what kind of a tree they're growing on. If a brown, mushy apple hangs from a branch, it's the branch of a diseased tree. And if there's a shiny red apple, then the tree is healthy. The decision here is about the teaching that we choose to listen to. The rotten fruit of false teaching and incorrect doctrine is harmful and indicates a, a lack of salvation in the one who produces it. However, a healthy, nourished tree with a deep and solid root system will produce good fruit, fruit that won't leave a sour taste in the mouth, but that will satisfy. As Christians, we are to correctly discern the difference between false and correct teaching in order to protect ourselves from spiritual damage. We do this by thinking biblically about what we hear. Is what this person is saying in line with what God says in his word? Or are they trying to jam a square peg into a round hole and mold scripture around their own agenda? Is scripture even a part of their preaching? Now, this is not to say that we should be overly critical of those in ministerial rules, but we shouldn't absorb everything we hear without question either. Think lovingly and kindly about what they say and weigh up whether it aligns with what the Bible says. Thirdly, we have two disciples. They both claim to do works in the Lord's name, but only one does the will of their Father in heaven and is accepted into his kingdom. The other cries out to the Lord, claiming they did all the right things, but Christ rejects them because of their unrepentant heart. Here, Jesus is calling us to discern where our hearts lie. Are we truly repentant and following the will of God, or are we doing our own thing under the guise of doing it for God? Now, let me be clear, following our own will other than God's will inevitably happen, even as believers, as we are all fallen creatures. And it doesn't mean that we've lost our salvation. But if we habitually reject God's will or make no attempt to discern it, that, is a sign, that should be a sign that we have some inward looking to do, to reevaluate who we are serving, ourselves or God. 
Doing the will of God is not just blindly following orders. It requires a humble heart that desires to please him. But it may also be possible that someone who claims to do things in God's name actually has an unrepentant heart. Someone who has grown up in the church may experience this. They say and do all the right things. They help with the ministries they're expected to. They sing not only loudly but tunefully during the church service. But there's no heart renewal. They look on the outside like they're on the right path. But there's no acknowledgement of sin or recognition of their need for salvation. It is important for us as believers to be able to identify these people. To lovingly help them to inspect their heart so that they won't have to hear the dreaded words, I never knew you. Finally, we have two houses. One is built on rock, solid and deep foundations that will never move when beaten by tempests. The other is on sand, an unstable and easily changeable surface and collapses instantly under any kind of pressure. Jesus wants us to decide who our authority is here. What do we build our foundations on? Do you build your life on Christ or do you build it on something else like science or relationships or power or hobbies or money? Who is the authority, the one who calls the shots in your life? Sometimes as Christians, we live most of our lives on the house that's built on rock but we like to occasionally go on holiday to the beach house. The views are nicer, life is calmer, nobody bothers us. It doesn't really matter that the foundations are a bit shaky, until it does matter. When the tide comes in and the storm swells, the sandy foundations fail us and collapse, and we find ourselves wishing that we had just stayed home where we were safe and secure. A foundation of rock is difficult to build, but it will stand strong when the storm comes. Having the correct foundation will make discernment much easier because we will have built our house on the one who never moves and never changes. So these are the pictures that Christ uses to show us the decisions that we must make with discernment in areas of personal living, teaching, repentance, and authority. Jesus leaves his listeners with a choice to live for him or live against him. As we go about our day-to-day -day lives, we are called to live in a way that aligns with what we are commanded in God's word. It is a difficult path, but Christ stands at the end of it, beckoning us to join him in eternal life. We have been given the, the tools to live in this way, the good gifts of love and humility from our Father in heaven. We are instructed to be gracious and merciful as we help and guide our brothers and sisters after first ruthlessly removing the log from our own eyes. As children of God, practicing discernment is not an optional extra. If we are to continue to grow in our faith, we must understand God's will for our lives. And it won't just come to us. We must ask, seek, and knock. We must spend time in his word, gaining a greater knowledge of what it means to live for him so that, unlike the German Coast Guard, we can act accordingly because we understand what he's asking of us. We must choose to live for him in every aspect of our lives so that when we come to the gates of the kingdom of heaven, we won't hear, I never knew you, depart from me, but we'll hear, well done, 
good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have shown us through it the example of how to love. You are love itself and you, you pass on that ability, that good gift to us uh, that we might show that same love to those around us, to show them compassion and mercy even when they uh, fail us, even when they're against us, Lord. Help us as a congregation and as individuals to love others as you have loved us. Give us the ability to discern your will, whatever situation we find ourselves in. Reveal yourself to us so that we know what you want us to do. Help, help us to be ruthless in cutting out the sin from our lives before humbly helping others to do the same. And Lord, I pray for anyone in the congregation tonight who doesn't yet know you. I pray that they will come to know you. I pray that you will speak to them through what we have read this evening and what we have sung about, that you will change their heart so that they will choose the, the narrow, outwardly unpleasant and unappealing path, but the path that leads to life. Lord, we pray these things in your name. Amen.